Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, in sweltering New York City. I am joined today uh, in cool... Um, uh, 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 bucolic uh, Vermont by David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David. How are you? Uh, it is bucolic, but it is not really cool today. No? You know, global warming has actually found its way to the green state. Um, well, wherever you are is a cool place, David. And from Washington, D.C., we have with us uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, a little a little bit uh, um, uh, uh, be, be, having suffered the, the challenge of walking across Washington to get here for the podcast. How are you, Ed? Uh, drenched, but drenched, but happy to be on time. Well, we're, we're glad to have you here. And in Alexandria, Virginia, I think we have with us the one and only Rosa Brooks. How are you, Rosa? I'm very well, David. It's only 95 degrees here, so it's it's really quite cool in comparison to much of the country. Yeah, don't you usually like escape to the eastern shore and live a better life? And tomorrow. Oh, oh, really? Oh, good. Well, that's a that's a that's a that's a good thing to do. Uh, well, it's good to talk to you all, all of you guys. Here's what I thought we should talk about today. Um, there is an article right now on the Post website, of course. Monday when we were recording this, uh, the Washington Post, I mean, not the other horrible New York version. Um, and uh, the the headline, it's by Ann Guerin, the headline is, Biden pulling pom- combat forces from Iraq seeks to end the post 9-11 era. And you know, headlines come and headlines go, but I thought about that a bit and I thought, I think there's a country song called that, David. Headlines come and headlines go. Uh huh. Yeah. No, you're probably you're probably it's got a lot right. of guitars and. Yeah, twangy. Yeah, yeah. No, you're probably right about that. Um, but it, the the my, you know I, I was thinking about it and I was thinking, well, when you pull out of Afghanistan and you pull out of um, Iraq, you are sending a pretty strong message that this era of the past 20 years is is coming to an end. Um, but it's not just that that I think makes the article um, worth considering. Um, it's that for, for a lot of reasons, um, uh, as we've talked about on the podcast, as some of you have written about, um, the, 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 the focus has really shifted. And, you know, George Bush, for most of his administration, the issue was the war on terror. Barack Obama didn't want to be George Bush, but when he was elected, he had to be strong on the issue of terror because, um, 
you know, that was, you know, you know, the, the, the one area where he was seen as, you know, potentially vulnerable. And even when he said he wanted to pivot to Asia, um, he wasn't really able to do it. He wasn't really able to pull away from these issues. And Donald Trump used the threat of, you know, the other threats associated with terror uh, as a centerpiece of some of his foreign policy. Um, and, and so all of these presidents haven't really been able to get away from it. And yet here we are with a president who wants to end these wars and who has shifted the focus to China, to cyber. This is the first president, I think, who has said cyber is a bigger issue than terror. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting shift. And I think it is actually just as momentous as the headline suggests, although obviously these things happen somewhat incrementally. What do you think, um, Rosa? No, I, I think it is a big shift, symbolically speaking. Uh, you know, I hope it doesn't backfire. Obviously, a lot of things could go wrong that would make it hard to fully detach or that would, would make those withdrawals uh, turn into political weapons for um, critics of the Biden administration. And, you know, I think, I think for instance, a Taliban takeover of, of Kabul would uh, be very bad news for Biden, not to mention very, very bad news for Afghanistan. Um, but with luck, that won't happen. I, you know, clearly Biden is sending a strong message. And I think he's doing exactly what um, he should do as a guy who is almost 80, who's probably going to have one term, um, who wants to leave a clean plate for his hopefully Democratic successor. You know, he's saying, hey, I've got nothing to lose, you know, and I'm going to sort of do the dirty, messy stuff that nobody else was willing or able to do as early in my administration as I can so that whatever toxic residue there might be in there, and as I said, there may be some, uh, won't, hurt, won't hurt Kamala Harris or whoever it is who becomes the, his successor. You know, they'll be able to, you know, they'll, we'll be out by then. It'll be over, whatever, with whatever ramifications that has will be, will be done and they'll have a clean slate. David, what do you think? You've been talking about this uh, somewhat, obviously, as you focus so much and so well on cyber. Um, uh, the, the, it does seem like the page is being turned, though, doesn't it? Um, it does. What's interesting here is the question of whether or not Biden was leading the nation, being led by the nation, or pushed the nation there. This has been Biden's position really since early in the Obama administration. You'll remember that when they did their first uh, Afghan-Pakistan review in 2009, he was the one taking the position that the U.S., could not try to go change these countries, needed to move down to a more minimal force. He had more people in mind at the time, probably a re residual force of 10 or 15,000 at that time in uh, Afghanistan. I think he's become more and more convinced over time that whether we spent one additional year, five additional years, or 10 additional years, it would make no difference in Afghanistan. Iraq is a different and harder play. And here, there's a little bit of a subterfuge underway as uh, my uh, colleagues, um, Eric Schmidt and Jane Roth reported uh, over uh, the weekend, um, which is that they're likely to set a deadline by uh, for withdrawal of all the US combat uh, forces by the end of the year. But they're gonna do that by removing uh, a small but unspecified number of the 2,500 American forces that are currently in Iraq, which is 
not a very big force, and then reclassifying the roles of the other forces so that they're not combat forces. Um, if this had been done in the Trump era, I think we would have probably been charging them with all kinds of um, you know, uh, paper shenanigans out here. Um, but the instinct is that while you may not have combat forces there, you need enough to keep Iraq from falling even under more of the influence of the Iranians. And so I think that while you're going to see, while you've seen um, a very eager Joe Biden to get out of Afghanistan, it's going to be a little more qualified in the Iraq case. Afghanistan, I agree with Rosa, is the bigger risk here. If Kabul should fall, certainly uh, Biden will end up uh, taking the blame for that. Uh, I think that would have just been a, a matter of time. We had to leave it at, at some point. But this is going to be a really interesting piece of diplomatic theater uh, at the White House today, um, because the fact of the matter is more and more of Iraq is under the grip of the Iranian-backed militias and a pretty corrupt political system. Ed, what do you think about it in terms of the historical context? After all, there's a kind of generation that has known nothing else but... America in the Middle East, America in the war on terror as the centerpieces of US foreign policy and try as other presidents might to get out of it, they couldn't get out of it. And now it seems like this president can with all the caveats that we just heard and is actually moving on to other issues. Um, I, I certainly welcome um, drawing a line under the foreign policy that followed 9-11 um, and moving on, um, uh, America's misreaction and overreaction to 9-11 um, produced the Iraq war, produced suspension of you know, various basic rights. It enabled authoritarians to say, oh, well, if America's doing this, why can't we? I mean, the whole sort of chapter uh, that 9-11 gave birth to is a mostly sorry chapter, and I'm not at all um, sad to see it being closed. I think for the most part, terrorism is about um, uh, police work and intelligence work. Um, and so I'm glad to see Biden doing that. Um, I am old enough, as I think the rest of you are, to remember the last time the Taliban was sort of making advances around Af a warlord torn and split Afghanistan in the 1990s. And there were a lot during the Clinton years, really. And there were a lot of people who were saying at the time, look, we know they're theocratic. We know they're not good for women. We know that they're, they're not into music and kite flying and stuff. But Afghanistan desperately needs a sort of coherent um, one government system. And um, at least the Taliban will provide that. Um, I don't hear the same kinds of sort of um, naive justifications for what may be about to happen. Um, today, but I do hear a lot of um, sort of dismissing it as no longer a concern, a direct concern of the United States. And that worries me because if, if we do see Taliban take over of most uh, of the country, if we see Kabul falling, it is going to be quite tragic. It might not instantly be bloodbaths and sort of mass executions, but it is going to be quite tragic for tens of millions of people. And it's going to therefore first and foremost be a humanitarian um, disaster for a whole country. 
Um, but secondly, it's going to be laid at America's door, whether it deserves to be laid at America's door or not. And I think that the blow to American prestige um, would be quite a big one, considering what I think right now is a fairly modest cost um, of keeping 2,000 people there, but basically more because all the NATO allies were there, um, conditioned on America's presence, doing something like what David is describing in Iraq, a little bit of, a little bit of kabuki, um, in order to have some minimal level of influence in Iraq or some minimal control over Kabul in Afghanistan is, I think, a relatively small price to pay um, to prevent that kind of tragedy and disaster that, that I think is likelier than not um, to happen. What's the, the upside for Biden? Well, of course, it is a very symbolic ending to the forever wars, and that is welcome. Um, these forever wars, you know, were ill-conceived. Um, but right now we are, we are where we are, and it is what it is. And faced with the sort of immediate trade-offs, I think he's taking the wrong decision. I'm going to be slightly provocative here, um, uh, Rosa, and say that my response to what Ed says, and you know I respect and admire Ed uh, above almost all other people, um, <laughs> is fully. And the reason I say it's fooey is, first of all, we were in Iraq to deal with the terrorists, in Afghanistan to deal with the terrorist threat. And to the extent to which that could be dealt with, it's been dealt with. Secondly, we were in Afghanistan for a long time um, uh, beyond which the stay had diminishing returns. There's an article in Politico, no, Axios, I think someplace, talking about the brilliant General Austin and how brilliant he is, but the Taliban kept coming anyway. And, and you know, the Taliban were in charge before and the Taliban are going to be in charge now. The third point on this, is, and, and we know it and we can't reverse it with the kind of commitment that we're willing to make politically. And, and the third point that I have is you know, maybe the military isn't the best way to assure the peace and safety or the rights of the women of Afghanistan. And if that's really a priority, I don't hear people make it a priority in other countries uh, that don't treat women properly. And I welcome it. And I think we should make it a centerpiece of foreign policy and use all the multilateral tools available to do it. But I'm not 100% sure that we've demonstrated that the United States military is the right tool to do all that. What do you think, Rosa? As a general statement, absolutely, I agree with you. You know, that is the US military the best tool to advance human rights or women's rights? Um, of course not, absolutely not. Um, that said, I, you know, I think, I think that what the question Ed is raising is in many ways a very different question which is insofar as partly through our own actions, we've now created uh, what we lawyers like to call, you know, a reliance interest on the part of the Afghans in, in having American troops there um, to at least protect certain parts of the country um, and maintain a status quo in those parts of the country in which women do have, I'm, I'm not gonna say full right, more rights. Uh, things are not as bad as they were under the Taliban. Um, that we've created that situation and when we now leave, the, when the military now leaves, 
there is a danger, it obviously will be overrun by a different military, which is not going to respect those rights. So, so, so I think, I think you can both be right, you know, that, that we shouldn't have gotten into this in the way we got into this 20 years ago, but having gotten into it in the way we did, having now a generation of Afghans um, uh, and a generation of Afghan women in many parts of the country grow up expecting some level of, of rights and expecting that the US military was there as a guarantor, when that military pulls out, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a crisis for them. And again, this is, this is not the same as saying that Biden is wrong to withdraw the remaining troops. Um, I'm inclined to think he's right, although I, I think he could have changed the pace um, and not done it quite so abruptly and completely. You know, I think a sort of tapering strategy probably would have been better during which we could be gradually trying to figure out better ways to support Afghanistan politically, economically, from a humanitarian perspective and so on. So I'm not crazy about the way he's doing it. Although at the end of the day, I agree with you, David, it, it's, you know, it's the right thing to do. But I also think that right this minute, the U.S. military is, well, the, mil the U.S. military has been playing a role as guarantor of rights, not because they advanced them or created them, but for the very simple reason that by protecting the current Afghan government uh, and keeping it from falling, that is the one thing that kind of stands between Afghan women and, and you know, catastrophic change. Uh, David, I think what we're hearing here is the kind of, you know, internal debate of policymakers on this thing. I, again, would argue that 10 years after the death of Osama bin Laden, um, uh, we've had 10 years of tapering. You know, we've had we've had 10 years where we were trying to prop up the government. We couldn't do it. 10 years we were trying to enable the Afghans to take care of it for themselves. Uh, to some extent, we've succeeded. To some extent, I think everybody thinks we haven't succeeded. Um but I think there's a big, a bigger issue here, and 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 you know, it's not about Afghanistan. The bigger issue is um, that the United States is is absolutely, completely worn out from nation building and localized um, uh, Middle East tasks. Kind of tired of the Middle East. Doesn't really see any solutions in the near term. Knows that it's cost. Three trillion dollars plus over the course of twenty years, and wants to move on to these other issues because cyber hits people in the United States every day. China is a rival that requires thought and investment. Uh, the world is moving on, and the United States is the only power in the world where, or virtually the only power in the world where. There is this discussion going on of how do we take care and preserve and guarantee the rights of other people, and we do so to the detriment of advancing our other objectives. What do you say? So to that? the logic is impeccable, and the cost still remain, or at least the perceived cost remains high. Look, the essence of your argument, David, is you got to leave sometime. We couldn't be there being a permanent occupying force. Shouldn't 20 years be enough in Afghanistan's case, 18 enough in Iraq's? And it's hard to argue with that logic. If you couldn't get it done in 20 years, you're not likely to get it done in the next 20. That said, it's the nature of American power 
that when you leave, you leave a vacuum and something fills that vacuum, right? And whether it's corrupt local politicians, whether it's the Taliban, whether it's a new terrorist group, whether it's a revived ISIS, something will fill the gap. And when that moment comes, we have to be prepared for the fact that there's a substantial part of the population <clears throat> around the world, and maybe even some in the United States, that would say this wouldn't have happened, as Ed pointed out, if you hadn't left. Now, if you go back to the first principle, you got to leave sometime. That means it's going to happen at some point. Um, Biden's biggest problem right now is that the argument about women and girls being able to go to school, equal rights, all that, that became, that was not the argument for invasion, but it became, particularly among liberals, an argument for staying for a while. And they can't figure out, now that you have an administration in place that is making an overdue case for putting human rights at more of the core of American foreign policy, how you square that with abandoning those people. And that's a, that's a real difficulty. So even if you believe that Biden is making the right choice, the inevitable choice, and the choice that he himself has made clear for a decade he would make, mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that dealing with that vacuum is any prettier. Okay, well, let me beat this dead horse for a minute longer. If we believe that the rights of women should be protected, especially against nefarious governments that are doing active harm to them, then aren't there better approaches, uh, multilateral approaches, diplomatic approaches, tough sanctions, the world moving together against all states that commit these abuses towards women rather than leaving it to an effectively insignificant um, uh, U.S. military? Is, is, isn't there a way to do this for the planet? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, having, having um, global standards of treatment of women is, is not something <laughs> that um, should be a low priority. And I'd, I'd love to see progress on that. But the, the, the situation we have in front of us with Afghanistan, you know, which America owns, to use the old Colin Powell um, line about the pottery barn, you broke it, you own, you own it. Um, it reminds me of Richard Holbrook, who was sidelined by the Obama administration. We had great plans to have a conference of Afghan, Afghanistan's neighbors, including Iran, which is why I guess it was unsellable, including Pakistan, including Tajikistan, Russia, bringing India in and so forth, because he recognized that every warlord had an external sponsor and that you couldn't, you couldn't really get stability in Afghanistan by American diktat. Um, uh, with somebody in Kabul, it had to be a broader regional diplomatic buy-in. Um, I would like to see Biden doing something like that as America leaves. Um, and I would have liked to have seen him not have the 20th anniversary deadline because that showed you just how sort of domestically focused this was, almost gimmicky as a deadline. And I also feel quite strongly that although, David, your point about the arrogance of forever wars and the arrogance of 9-11 is absolutely well made. And it's a hugely important point. This has been a, for the most part, a bad period. 
There's also arrogance from superpowers pulling out of situations um, uh, uh, and not and not um, and not paying too much attention to the broken crockery and how to fix it. And you might say that we've been there 20 years. That's true, but. We still haven't tried Dick Holbrook's prank. We still haven't asked Iran and Pakistan and others to sit around the same table uh, and um, roll up their sleeves and attempted diplomacy. If I saw Biden doing something like that, I would take this more seriously. But I think this is a domestic, domestic symbolic act. And I think that's arrogant. Rosa, there's no, no chance that the United States asks Iran to join it around a table on this in the current mood. And there's no way to achieve this without Iran being involved. Um, and Pakistan is not a highly trustworthy interlocutor in this regard um, either. Um, what I find interesting about this conversation is that I read the article and I thought, oh, this era is over. It was a terrible era. Um, uh, we should never have launched the war on terror. We incredibly overreacted. We should have gone in, gone after Al Qaeda, been there a year, done the best we could, been there a couple of years. If we'd focused on that and not the war in Iraq, we would have gotten to bin Laden faster, arguably, there were more resources. And then we could have left and gone on to the, the, you know, the, the rest of our business around the world. And there's so many other issues that, you know, it's about time we got back to great power realities, rebuilding ourselves from within, um, uh, facing the rising challenges of the 21st century, as opposed to the challenges of a couple of failing societies in the Middle East. And nobody wants to talk about you guys just want to talk about Afghanistan. No, no. I mean, David, you're you're absolutely right. We've got to focus on for all the reasons we've discussed here for years, all the bigger issues, right? I mean, the China challenge is the challenge of our time. It's a domestic as well as an international challenge. It's a jobs challenge. It's a technology challenge. It's a military challenge. It doesn't even compare with the challenge of dealing with failing societies and Iraq and Afghanistan-like conflicts. Threats like cyber, obviously, as you've seen in the past six months, being exploited by a huge variety of our adversaries, some of them criminal state, some of them crim states, some of them criminal groups, and uh, that's gotta be a higher priority. I don't think anyone's arguing with that. The only thing that I think you're hearing here is don't kid yourself to think it's going to be cost-free, right? Because there, the, these, these wars linger on for exactly the reason that you just suggested, that when we went in, in 2001 in Afghanistan and 2003 in Iraq, we forever changed the dynamics inside those societies. And you can't just sort of pick up and say, ah, forget about that ever happening good luck with this and go on. I mean, you know, this is the ultimate in you break it, you bought it. And uh, now we are trying to return it and you see what happens. Rosa, is you break it, you brought it, bought it, an, an actual doctrine of international law? Uh, yes, David, it's embedded in the, the, the treaty of, of uh, Tyson's Corner um, made in uh, uh, the year 2003. Um, um, 
So I, I mean, no, I completely agree with, with David, you know, that I think, I think let's not add insult to in, our, our withdrawal is going to have a cost and it's going to have the highest cost to many Afghans who have been our loyal friends for 20 years. And let's not add insult to injury by pretending that's not the case. Um, that doesn't mean that we have a viable alternative. We absolutely have other things that we need to be doing. There's a limit to what we actually can do in Afghanistan. But I think it, it you know, let's, let's not say to ourselves, let's not lie to ourselves and say, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's totally cool for us to withdraw because it's stable. Everything's great. It's going to be fine. No problem. That clearly is not the case. And I understand that to some extent, Biden has to sort of pretend that that's kind of the case for domestic constituencies. But, but I think the rest of us certainly shouldn't shouldn't say anything other than like, yeah, this, this could be really horrific um, for the Afghans. It may, it may yet be the case that it, given the available alternatives and given, given US priorities and needs and given US capabilities that this is, we just, this is what we have to do. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, gonna be, it's gonna be messy. It's already messy. Yeah, it, it is gonna be messy, but Ed, is it fair to blame Joe Biden after 20 years of other presidents making decisions that some of which, particularly during the George W. Bush administration, were ghastly decisions. I mean, the Obama administration made some pretty bad decisions, too, I think, in terms of the use of drones, the violation of international sovereignty. The Trump administration was a bad decision from beginning to, to end. You know, Biden is trying to end it. Isn't the expectation that he ends it tidily completely unrealistic, given the history of Afghanistan or the history or the state of Iraq right now? I think um, Biden was right, as you, as both Davids have said on this show before in 2009 with what he argued. And I think probably Obama's surge was a considerably bigger mistake than the one Biden is about to make. Um, and do we blame Biden for you know what's happened since or before? No, I think Biden's held a pretty good, consistent, skeptical position about the degree to which America can remake a society like Afghanistan. And I think he's right, it can't. Um, uh, but I, I do think he's accountable for the decisions he makes while in office. And uh, I don't think there was any great domestic sort of clamor to put out the remaining 2,500 or the whatever it was. Uh, eight, 10,000 other NATO troops that were there. I think he could have bought himself a, a few more months. You know, Trump had made a pretty dishonorable deal. Um, Khalilzad, who's st still in the job, had made a pretty dishonorable deal with the Taliban in which the Afghan government was not a party to the talks. This is pretty, this is pretty nefarious after all this time to actually do a deal with the enemy and, and not bring in the government that's supposedly your ally. Um, that was Trump's decision. I was loud in my criticism, not that that matters, but many of us were loud in our criticism then. Um, but think Biden, because he's Biden, should get off more lightly. I, I, I think Biden could buy himself more time to, I hate to use an old-fashioned term, but to do this more honorably. Um, okay. Okay. Um, so where 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 does that leave us? I mean, I think David, you we've sort of gotten out of our order here, but I'll go back to you, David. The, you know, 
you know, what is what is the right position for the United States? Should should those few thousand advisory troops remain in Iraq indefinitely? Does the United States have a permanent responsibility to maintain stability in the Middle East when so many of the governments there don't embrace democracy, don't embrace our view of rights, don't, and we don't need them. You know, we don't, you know, yes, energy is a, is a, is a global commodity, but, but we're the world's leading energy producer now. We don't need it. You know, why, why is this, you know, permanently upon us? And why is it our responsibility to put a bow around it, around it, as opposed to local powers or the international community? You know, I never thought I'd see the day where David Rothkopf became the most articulate um, expositor of the America First philosophy, but I, I guess we've just hit it. Here. No, no, that's, <laughs> you know, that's that's not fair. It's not no, I, fair to say that it's America First for America not to be involved in places it shouldn't be involved that, in. That, that, it, that, you know, my argument is that we should focus on the places where we should right. be involved. So, so uh, David, I would agree with. I mean. Obviously, you know, you're, you're preaching to the converted here on why we need to go focus on China, why we need to go focus on new technologies and, and, and so forth. Um, in, and in the Afghan case, I think you can make that argument very clearly and easily. In the Iraq case, it's complicated by the fact that we have the Iran nuclear negotiations underway, right? Because um, what we want to do with these negotiations is Stage one, if you believe the Biden administration, uh, get the deal reinstated. Stage two, get to agreements on missiles and support for terror uh, operations in the region. And the question is, are you negotiating from a position of strength if you just picked up and left in Iraq where they are most, most active? So I think the answer is, like the answer is for most things out here, you've got to do a pretty hard uh, analysis of what American interests are. And the American interests in Afghanistan and in Iraq today, for the concerns today, not the concerns of 2001 and 2003, are somewhat different and divergent. And uh, you can't separate your Iraq strategy from your Iran strategy. Uh, So um, do I think in the end, It's going to make that big a difference, whether we have 2,500 troops or 2,000 or 1,500 in what the Iranian influence is going to be in the region? No. If we picked up everybody and left, does that send a certain message? Yeah, I think I'd read that in Tehran in a a particular way. And I think that's what makes this a hard choice. We did leave people and we did leave troops, lots of them, tens of thousands of them, in Germany and Japan and South Korea for decades and decades after the conflicts were over because we had our own distinct national interests in pushing back on the Russians, on the Chinese, on the North Koreans and so forth. So that's not an unusual thing. Um, But what is unusual is that Iraq in its current state, its current corruption, its current dysfunction is not Germany, it's not Japan, and it's not South Korea. It's it's true, it's true. Um, I'll say three things. One, Rosa has told me that she has to end right now, so I can't really turn to her unless there's something you wanna say last 
word. What David like, said. What David said. <laughs> um, two, the last time we screwed up something this badly um, uh, in Vietnam, it actually turned out okay. And 20 years later, um, we were entering into a commercial relationship with the Vietnamese and um, uh, it was not a complete catastrophe. And we vilified them uh, pretty heavily in the mid seventies. And thirdly, um, and of course the twist to this conversation is, I agree with what you guys are saying. I think this could have been done more gracefully, um, but I think it's all a bit of inside baseball foreign policy nuance. And a couple of years here, a couple months there, I, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I think the argument needs to be made much more clearly to the country about why we are turning the page. And I would argue that the, the main reason is, is, is that hard-nosed analysis of U.S. national interests that David talked about. The national interests here are nowhere near what they were in 2001 in terms of where we stand with terrorism, in terms of where we stand with energy, in terms of what other issues are on our mind, in terms of the way we fight wars. It's all very- yeah, I don't think anybody would disagree with that, David. Yeah, no, well, see, I know this was the sounded a little bit like, you know, the, you know a lively debate uh, in a very intelligent uh, podcast among, you know, smart people, but uh, I actually agree with you guys. And I think on some level you agree with me. So, um, uh, uh, I, I think at the end of the day, trains leaving the station, though. And so I think it's time to, you know, accept that and understand what's going on. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you. I hope that you stay cool wherever you are, David and uh, Ed. I, you know, Rosa has clearly said she's smart enough to head to the Eastern Shore. Um, and, uh, you know, as ever, um, I, you know, I wish I could emulate her example and, um, we will be back again soon, um, uh, for our, uh, usual array of, uh, podcasts. We'll have one on Thursday in which we, uh, get together with, uh, Ryan and Barb McQuaid and Kavita Patel and talk a little bit about the house, um, uh, committee looking into one sixth and what are the questions they should be asking and how should we should be going with that. Um, and um, for more on what we've got coming, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you want, and even if you don't want, click on membership, become a member, help support what we're doing, because um, we got a lot of good stuff coming. Thanks, everybody, and uh, stay healthy. Bye-bye. <laughs>